If you'll go to 2 Kings chapter 17 and just go back to the left one chapter, that's how you find it. Last week we began expounding verse 11, and so we'll continue that today. Uriah the priest has consented to an unholy request by King Ahaz to build an altar like the one in Damascus. And in the previous verses, King Ahaz went to Damascus. He beheld the altar. He sent the fashion and the pattern of the altar of the finished product. That's the workmanship. He sent that back to Uriah the priest. Ahaz ignored every warning the scriptures give about the adulterous woman in a spiritual sense. We covered that at length last week. So we'll go on with that same verse and look at some other truths that popped out as I was studying it. What Uriah did is no different than what Aaron did in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. So we're going to learn a little about Uriah's state of mind because he was the priest in Ahaz's day. We're going to learn a little more about him by learning about Aaron, or if you've already been through that uh, teaching with us here and you still remember it, then this will be a review for you. If not, it'll be like learning it all over again, won't it? Exodus 32, verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up! Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. Now this was the time when Moses was in Mount Sinai receiving the commandments from the Lord. And the children of Israel were down at the foot of the mountain. And they weren't allowed to come to the mountain or even touch the borders. Their animals weren't allowed to do so either. And the death penalty was the penalty for disobeying that command. Now the children of Israel in those days who had come out of Egypt were a spiritually immature bunch of people. In fact, many of them, probably most of them, if we examine the scriptures, were lost, spiritually lost, just like King Ahaz in our text. In fact, if you back up in Exodus to chapter 19 and verse 1, the Bible said, in the third month, now think about that, they were out in the wilderness no more than three months. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. So they had been delivered from bondage less than three months by the time they arrived at Sinai. In Exodus chapters 20 through 24, those five chapters, God gave people, he gave the people the Ten Commandments. He gave them laws pertaining to personal property rights and private property rights. He told them about the three feasts they were to keep. He gave them some criminal and civil laws, much of which we have patterned our current laws after. And Moses wrote, 
all of those things down. Now, this is before he went up to Mount Sinai. Moses wrote all of those laws and commandments down. And in Exodus 24, verse 3, where the people said, All the words which the Lord has said will we do. So they had heard the word, and Moses wrote down the word for them. And in verse 7 of that chapter, that writing is referred to as the book of the covenant. So this is still before Moses went up into Mount Sinai. And in verse 12 of chapter 24 in Exodus, God told Moses to come up to the mountain. And that's where God would give him the tables of stone. He'd give him the law and the commandments which God himself had written down. And then from chapters 25 through chapter 31 in Exodus, God gave Moses very detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle. I mean every board, every joint, every curtain, material, colors, everything. And all the furnishings that belonged in there. He gave him detailed instructions about the priests and the clothes they were supposed to wear and the workmen whom he had gifted to make all of those things that pertain to the tabernacle. So before we move on with these children of Israel, we've been reminded that before Moses ever went up the mountain, they'd already been told the law. They had already been given the book of the covenant, so they had it in writing, and they had Aaron to lead them. Now, that should have been trouble-free. Moses should have been able to say, I told you the law, I wrote it in the book of the covenant, and you've got Aaron, my older brother here, who God has appointed as my spokesman. He's going to be here with you. Now, you guys behave, I'm going to go see God. There should have been no trouble during that time. <clears throat> but listen to Exodus 32, 1 again. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, so what was their first problem? Why, he's been up there too long. We haven't seen him for a while. The preacher's away. When Moses delayed to come down, out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. Now, who is Aaron? He's their leader. He would later become the high priest. And they said, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us, for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, that means we know not what has become of him. So because they had waited down there too long, and they hadn't seen Moses in a while, they went to the one who was entrusted to lead them, Aaron, the one who should have been their spiritual guide in all matters, and said, make us gods. And the reason we want you to do that is we haven't seen Moses for a while. Now that's pretty immature, isn't it? That's pretty shallow. What the children of Israel asked Aaron to do was no different than what King Ahaz asked Uriah the priest to do. All of them, both in Aaron's day and in Ahaz's day, had access to and were responsible for obedience to God's commandments. None of them could have said, well, I didn't, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know God said not to do that. That's, yes, you did. Now listen to what God told Moses once God saw the children of Israel worshiping that golden calf. And this is found in Exodus 32, verses 7 through 8. Exodus 32, verses 7 through 8. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. They corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly. And we'll look at those words in just a moment. Now, King Ahaz, in our text, is in the same process. He's doing the same thing the children of Israel did. He's just using a different altar. They used a golden calf. He's using an altar from Damascus. You see the similarities there? In that Exodus passage I read you, Chapter 32, that word corrupted, is the same Hebrew word as the word destroy. And that's how it's translated. In one place, it's translated corrupted. In another place, it's translated as the word destroy. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, we'll see how those two words are actually used together. They go together. It's Genesis 6, verses 12 through 13. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. There's, it. There's the word corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now the word corrupt, corrupted, and destroy in that verse are all the same Hebrew word, the exact same Hebrew word. When something is corrupted, scripturally speaking, it only has one destination, destruction. That's all you can do with something that's been corrupted is to destroy it. Something that is corrupt must be destroyed. Even Noah and his family would have been destroyed because they too were corrupt. But do you know what the difference was? That by God's grace, Noah and his family entered the ark. And who shut the door on it? Noah? God did. That's right. God shut the door. And it was sealed. And they were saved from the flood. Now the altar of Damascus and the religion that used it were also corrupt. Is there any way that that religion could be made holy? No. You can't make that religion holy. It's corrupt. Could it be reformed? No. Could its followers be saved by it? No, no, and no. Everything pertaining to the altar of Damascus and the false religion it represented was corrupt, and so it was fit for one thing, destruction. That's it. Now, perhaps this will help you understand more profoundly or from a different angle why none of the religions of this world can lead a person to salvation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 9, the apostle Paul wrote about this, and he said, when... 
He was writing about when Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He said, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. That's unsaved. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And just in case you've never been taught or you've been taught wrongly on what it means to obey the gospel, obey the gospel means to believe the gospel. That's how you obey the gospel. And there are the Campbellites will teach you that you've got to start obeying the gospel if you want to get back in the good grace of God, and they've got it all messed up. You can't... The gospel is a finished work. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as shown to us. In fact, if you want the dictionary for what the gospel is, you want the dictionary definition, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. That's the gospel. It's right there. How that Jesus died for our sins and was buried, according to the scripture, and he rose again. That's the gospel. Very simply put. So to obey the gospel means I have to believe that because I can't do that. I can't die for the sins of the world. I'm an unqualified substitute. I'm a filthy rag, a, a mangy animal. So if I died, it would just be the, the wages of sin, right? Death. So I can't die and be buried and be raised again to give Doug hope of eternal life. If his hope was in me, he's a goner. I love preaching in East Texas. I can say a goner, and everybody knows what I mean. <laughs> so don't get confused by obey the gospel, thinking that it means you have to do some type of work. But in that verse I just, or those verses I read you from Second Thessalonians chapter 1, it's teaching that Jesus is not going to try to rehabilitate those who don't know God when he comes. Now, right now, the gospel call is going out all over the world. The gospel is being preached. It is available. If you can get online, you can find the gospel. You are without excuse no matter where you are in this world. But when Jesus comes again, there's not going to be any rehabilitation for those who don't know God because he said they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. He's going to take vengeance upon them. He's going to destroy them. What did we learn about things that are corrupt? They're fit for destruction. A person may say, wow, that's pretty heavy. It is. The justice of God is very narrow. It is exact. And that's why I couldn't handle the justice of God. I'm glad he poured it out on Jesus for me. Jesus handled the justice of God for me. I just have to believe in what he did. That takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? And back in the Exodus 32 passage, God said the children of Israel had not only corrupted themselves, but they had also turned aside quickly out of the way he commanded them. And, to, and turned aside, that Hebrew word means departed. They left. To further our understanding of that Exodus passage, which has, is going to help us with our text in 2 Kings, 
let's just put this all together. When something is corrupted, it has turned aside from its original way, and it must be destroyed. This is why the sinner has to be born again. His flesh is corrupt, and all of the religions of this world, except for the one true religion that Jesus Christ commanded us to observe, to believe, all of the other religions of this world try to take corrupt flesh and reform it, make it acceptable to God. They try to put lipstick on the pig and say it's a pretty pig. It doesn't work. Why? Because if it's corrupt, it has to be destroyed. The Bible says the wages of sin is what, brother? It's death. It doesn't say the wages of sin is 10 years of probation, and if you follow all the rules, that's what purgatory is, by the way. You get a little probation there, and then the Catholics say if you just, if you follow some rules and people here on the earth that are still living pray for you, all kinds of nonsense, well, then, then you can go to be with God. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. If it's corrupt, it has to be destroyed. A sinner's ways are corrupt. His desire is corrupt. They can't please God. And you know God made man to fellowship with him and to glorify him in holiness. And for a short while, Adam and Eve had that fellowship with God. It was unbroken by sin. And all they had to do is keep one commandment. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. It's the only commandment they had. Sin had not yet entered into the world. But what did Adam do? He turned aside quickly out of the way that the Lord had commanded him. And so did everyone born after him. Except for the one who was born of a virgin. And because of what Adam did, then we understand why the children of Israel in Exodus quickly turned out of the way and made the golden calf. They had a sin nature and they chose to obey their sin nature. They were fit for destruction and the Bible teaches us that many of them were destroyed. Most of the children of Israel and the mixed multitude, don't forget about them, who were delivered from the physical bondage of Egypt. They were physically taken from here, through the wilderness, across the Red Sea, as God dried it up, and now they're in the wilderness en route to the Promised Land, a 40-year trip that should have just taken about 10 days had they not been hard-hearted and stiff-necked. But of all those people who were physically delivered from the bondage of Egypt... Few of them were willing to be delivered from the bondage of sin. Now, we learn about our own salvation when we study the Exodus, the deliverance from Egypt, which is a type of our bondage to sin, and into the promised land. And that was done by the hand of God himself. The people just walked the way that God laid out for them. They didn't part the Red Sea. They didn't keep those, the Egyptian army off their tails. They didn't light the sky up with a pillar of fire and then the cloud by day. They didn't make that. That was all God. They couldn't protect themselves, but God did. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, 
the greatest commentary in the Bible, I believe. Well, I know it's greater than any commentary man has ever written. Exodus, or excuse me, Hebrews three sixteen through nineteen tells us about those children of Israel. It said, "For some, when they had heard, did provoke. They didn't believe. They provoked. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. In other words, there were some that did believe. Not all of them provoked the Lord. But with whom was He grieved forty years?" Who was God upset with? Who was he displeased with? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So if a person thinks, well, God saved them out of Egypt, therefore they were also spiritually saved. No, they weren't. The Bible says they weren't. Says they died, they could not enter into his rest, into that promised land because of unbelief. He wandered an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness, and every one of them died before reaching the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only two from that generation that came out of Egypt who made it to the promised land Joshua and Caleb. No, not Aaron, and no, not Moses. Now, those children of Israel who came out and said, well, we're Israelites. Of course God will save us. Have you ever heard that from somebody who says, well, now, God's going to save all the Jews because they're Jews. It's not what the Bible says. They're in unbelief. And King Ahaz in our text could not say, not only am I a Jew, but I'm also a king. Surely I will be saved from my sins. He was in unbelief. His rejection of the way God had given him and his desire for the altar of Damascus showed that he was just like the children of Israel who desired and worshipped that golden calf under Aaron's watch. And Aaron, who afterward would be the high priest, he did just like Uriah. He did what the people wanted. All of that clamoring they did about Moses being up in the mountain and saying to Aaron, up, make us gods to go before us. Aaron could have shut all that down. He could have said, on your faces right now, you better repent. You better pray God doesn't swallow every one of you up in the earth. But he didn't do it. He did what the people wanted. He used their own golden earrings to make the calf. He could have told them no, but it was easier to let them have their way. Uriah could have told King Ahaz no, but it was easier to let the king have his way too. God was angry with Aaron and the children of Israel. But look how Aaron responded when he was confronted about the golden calf in Exodus 32, verses 21 through 22. Boy, Moses was upset. He was so mad he threw down the tables of stone, and he shouldn't have done that. It says in Exodus 32, verses 21 through 22, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? Now, who did... Moses blame right then. Aaron, 
What have they done to you that you would do this and bring this great sin upon them? He expected Aaron to be a leader. There's no question that Aaron was left to lead those people while Moses was in the mountain. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. What did Aaron do? He blamed the people. Now, where have we seen that before? Man, we saw it in the Garden of Eden, didn't we? God said, Adam, what'd you do? And he said, well, this woman over here. And then she said, well, it's the serpent over here that beguiled me. They all pointed a finger somewhere besides right here. How easy would it be for Uriah to say the same thing about Ahaz? Perhaps a weak priest like Uriah would say, Ah, yes, but Lord, uh, at least I didn't worship at that altar. I mean, I built it for the king because he wanted it, and I let him have it, but at least I didn't worship at the altar. It's all the king's fault. You know how kings can be, Lord. Now, we don't read that Uriah said that, but he has the same weak constitution as Aaron did at that time in Aaron's life. In Exodus, Aaron blamed the people rather than accepting his own responsibility as a failed leader. He did what Adam did when God confronted him about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was in Genesis chapter 3 verse 12 that I alluded to. And the man said, the, the woman whom thou gavest me, gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. In fact, Adam not only blamed the woman... But it appeared that he blamed God as well. Because he said, the woman, thou gavest me. And if Uriah was weak enough to build an unholy altar, then he was weak enough to blame the king for the sin rather than owning it himself. Now I want you to remember this lesson. If you're ever on the business end of a scriptural rebuke, whether it's in private or from the pulpit, when the truth steps on your feet, it smites your heart, makes you angry, whatever your emotion is. It would be easier for us when we preached and administer this church to just let everyone do that which is right in his own heart. It'd be a lot easier. Somebody comes up and says, oh, hey, Brother Andy, you know, uh, we're thinking about doing this. And I go, oh, go ahead, knock yourself out, have a good time at it, knowing that it's wrong, knowing that I should give them what the Scripture says about their idea, their question, because that is hard. We have to study. We have to counter the objections people have with more Scripture and say, well, no, now what you're saying is not true because the Bible also says this. You know, that's difficult. It'd be a lot easier to say, I don't care what you do. Well, I do. Now, I'm not going to get in your business. I'm not going to set up surveillance around your house. But if you come ask me something, then by God's grace, I'm going to give you the answer from the Bible. And I'm not going to ask you if you like it or not. I'm going to be kind and loving. But I'm going to give you what the Bible says, and then you'll have to make the decision about what to do. God commanded us to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. So we rebuke, but we also exhort. We also encourage. 
with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, how did he say we're supposed to do that? Long-suffering, that's being patient. Teach it over and over and over again. Do you know why Brother Fulton uses almost a year to teach the Genesis to Jesus class and then before that the creation to Christ class? Long-suffering and doctrine. If somebody comes to me and says, Brother Andy, I want to be saved. I don't know how. I can do the two-minute ADD version, and they walk away thinking, my goodness, I'm not sure I understand any of that. If you tell somebody who doesn't know anything about the Old Testament, Jesus bled and died on the cross for your sins, oh, okay. They have no idea why that happened. But with long-suffering and doctrine, taking the time to teach them from the Old Testament, going back to Genesis, to help them understand who God is and who man is and what man has done to separate himself from God and that God is holy and just and that he has to punish sin. The wages of sin is death and nobody stands a chance of being accepted by him apart from the way he gave and explaining the gospel to them and showing how a person must believe that. That takes time. You can't do that in five minutes. Or at least you shouldn't. Long-suffering and doctrine. Patience and teaching. That's it. Patiently teaching God's word is how we rebuke, reprove, exhort. That's what the Bible says to do. We're not teachers who are sent to please itching ears. Because the Bible says there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that uh, those people will not endure sound doctrine. So think about that. If I were an ear tickler, I just, whatever you came in here and said, maybe I had a little suggestion box down here and told people, hey, come up and put a topic in there that you want me to preach on, what you want me to say about it. I opened it up and said, oh, here we go. Well, so-and-so wants me to preach on this subject here, and here's what they want me to say about it. And I just did that, and I looked at it, and everybody smiled and going, yeah, that's good. I like that. Then when it came time to tell those people what the Bible says about something, the Bible clearly tells us that they're not going to endure that. <laughs> they're not going to like that. They're not only not going to like it, they're not going to put up with it. They're going to leave and go somewhere else. So two things we try to do here is by long-suffering in doctrine, teaching the Bible patiently, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, not substituting other things for it, putting it in its place. We want to attract those who are spiritually hungry. People who are Christians who love God's Word and want to learn it better. People who are lost, but they're looking for the truth. They're tired of hearing what the religions of this world have told them, the lies they've heard about how to be saved, how to be accepted by God. We want to attract those people here. The ones who we don't want to attract are people who want their itching ears tickled. We want to be told how good they are and how wonderful they are no matter what they do and that, uh, yeah, we'll cut our messages down to five minutes just so you don't have to sit there and get bored. Yeah, we'll make sure and get you out of here at this particular time because we know you have a roast in the oven. Uh, I mean, we, we don't try to keep people here all day long. But... Teaching, long-suffering and doctrine, that's what we do. So if you ever wonder, 
Because I'm going to tell you, this is on the plate of a lot of people. This is on the minds of a lot of people in churches all over the world, and that is their idea of what the pastor's supposed to be doing. What's he supposed to be doing during the week? Well, you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you'll see it's a narrow list. It's not what you think. You read Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8 there, you'll see what it is that the, the apostles were supposed to do. They were to give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And all of these other carnal things that were necessary, like feeding the Grecian widows and so forth, they appointed deacons to take care of that. You want to know what a, a pastor is supposed to do? There are several places to read about it, but one of them is there in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So Uriah the priest, look back in your text now. 2 Kings 16, if you've just joined us, or if you just woke up. 2 Kings 16, I'm just playing nobody's sleep. At the very end of the verse it says, So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. Now if you haven't read the King James translation before, you're probably saying, what does that mean? That's okay. That's not how we would say it today. Here's how another translation reads. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. That's what that means. He made the altar before King Ahaz got back from Damascus. And that also makes sense. That translation makes sense based upon what the next verse says. So let's look at verse 12. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar and offered thereon. It says, and when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Now, he couldn't have seen the altar if it wasn't already made, right? So that helps us understand what verse 11 means when it says, So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. It just means he made it before the king got back from Damascus. Now, I want you to notice, and I doubt we'll get to finish these three in here, but I want you to notice three verbs in this verse, in verse 12, that are going to help you understand how sin runs its course. Boy, these are good teachers right here. This is how sin runs its course. It's the verb saw, approached, and offered. First, the king saw the altar. Now, I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and give you the first part of verse 6. Now, we're going to get the second part in just a minute, but the first part of verse 6. So, that's Genesis 3, 6, small letter A. It lets you know we're just referring to the first part of the verse right now. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. The word saw there is the same Hebrew word. It's the same translated word as it is in our text. The king saw the altar. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. When King Ahaz saw this altar that had been built by Uriah the priest, he didn't just glance at it. He didn't say, oh yeah, I saw that. Like I do when my wife says, oh, look over here. And I'll say, yeah, I saw it. Well, if I'm driving, I don't have time to look over there. Because if we're going... 70 miles an hour out here on US 175, that is about 105 feet per second. And so for every second I take my eyes off the road, I have traveled 105 feet without knowing what was in front of me. 
So I might glance at something real quick and say, yeah, I saw that, but I didn't get to behold it like she does from the passenger side where she can look at the color and the structure or if it's a beautiful plant, what kind of flowers it has. And when Ahaz saw the altar, he beheld it. He considered it. He regarded it. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated as the word saw is also translated as the word consider, respect, regard, and enjoy. Ahaz regarded this altar rather than disregarding it. He had respect to this altar rather than having contempt for it. What would a person, an Israelite who was right with God in those days have done if he had seen an altar constructed outside the tabernacle or outside the temple in these days, some altar that was sent from Damascus, what do you think somebody who was right with God would say? Would they say, oh, I regard it, I behold it? They'd say, no, I don't want to see that thing. That's disgusting. That's an abomination before the Lord. When I've seen statues in churches where I've attended weddings or funerals. You've probably all had to go to a funeral at a Catholic church or some Orthodox church or wherever it may be. Any, It may be a Baptist church that had something like this. And when I see those statues in those churches, I detest them. Now, in the eyes of an artist, the statue may be a wonderful work of sculpture. And I have nothing against sculpture. I think a person who can take a block of wood and whittle it into a, a dog or a bird or somebody who can take a stone and turn it into something that you can behold and you can recognize, I think that's a wonderful talent. Somebody who can make pots out of clay, those are that's pretty cool to me. Now, I don't do most of those things, but when somebody does, it's wonderful. But the reason I detest those statues in churches even though they may be marvelous works of sculpture, is because I know what those statues mean to the worshipers who bow down to them. That's why I detest the statues. I don't enjoy looking at them. I don't tell the priest in that church, oh, what a wonderful addition to your sanctuary. Now, applying what we learn about the word saw, the verb saw, which is the past tense of the word see, Let's make a couple of observations here. When a person sees something in the way that Ahaz saw this altar, he is looking at it with regard, with respect. He's enjoying what he sees. So when he tells you, oh, I was just looking, he's lying to you. He's lying. We have an increasing number of car burglaries in our area. And the burglars like to walk through neighborhoods at night or in parking lots, large business parking lots during the day. And they're looking into cars to see if there's anything valuable there. They're pulling on handles to see if the door has been left unlocked. So from time to time, a person will call 911 and say, there's a suspicious person over here in the 
Target parking lot. And they're looking into vehicles in that parking lot, walking up and down the, the road. Well, guess what those suspicious persons say when we confront them about their behavior? They say, I was just looking. We know better. How many times have you got out at the parking lot of your up here at Atwoods and you just walked around and you looked in everybody's vehicle? Yeah. You do that, you're liable to meet somebody who is a fan of the Second Amendment. Or who has an old dog who was laying down in the bed of the truck, but now he's interested in what's going on around the truck. Not only did the verse say Ahaz saw the altar, but it also says he approached the altar. He approached to the altar. He drew near to it. Not accidentally, but with the purpose of offering something on it. You might say, well, now how do you know that? Well, the word approached is also translated as the word offer more than it is translated as the word approached. The assumption here of one who approaches in this manner is that he's about to offer something on it. Now let's take what we learned about the word saw and apply it to the word approached. Just like there was an intent in Ahaz when he saw the altar... There was also an intent when he approached the altar. When he approached the altar, he might say, well, I was just in the neighborhood and happened to be passing by, and what do you know, I ran into this altar. No, the original language here teaches us that the word approached has the purpose of making an offering, not just passing by, not just running into something. So not only did Ahaz see the altar and approach the altar, but thirdly, it, the text says he offered thereon, that is, on the altar. Now the word translated as offered here is different than the word approached. And this word for offered normally means to come up or to go up. And it's first seen in Genesis chapter 2 verse 6. But there went up, there it is, there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And then in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended in, upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended. Same Hebrew word as offered, same Hebrew word as went up. As the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. Now, the idea of an offering according to this Hebrew word for offered is that the smoke of the offering goes up. It ascends to the Lord. It's supposed to be a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, and the correct offering is and was. So when Ahaz placed an offering, which, as we'll learn, included flesh, a drink offering, and it says a meat offering, that means a meal offering, it was going to be burned. It wasn't going to just be left there. The intent of this word is that when he offered it, it was going to be burned. He didn't just put it up on there to offer it and say, what happens from here out is not in my hands. I didn't actually set the fire. I didn't actually uh, cause the smoke to go up. Somebody else did that. We looked at three verbs here that described Ahaz's sin. Saw, approached, 
and offered. Now I'm going to go back to that passage in Genesis I read a moment ago. I gave you the first half, Genesis 3, 6, and then you put the letter A. But I'm not going to do that till next week because we're out of time. That's like taking that last spoon of pudding away and putting it back in the dish, isn't it? It's all right. It'll be here for you next week, God willing. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for those who came, for the good attention they've given, for those who've tuned in online and set aside this time as holy because we're in your word. I pray that you would teach each one of them by your spirit what you've taught me and what you uh, declared in your word, that we would go away enlightened, edified, not confused, not discouraged, but encouraged, Father, as we have been exhorted, as we have been rebuked, as we've been reproved through the long-suffering and doctrine of the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.